0: Welcome to the Podcast for Ambitious Women. I'm your host, Dr. Dee Franey. If you're a leader, innovator, or change maker, you belong here. Because around here, ambitious women are encouraged to have big, bold, unapologetic goals and dreams, and given the tools to execute and achieve them without the pressure, hustle, overwhelm, or burnout. Ladies, it's time to unlock your potential. I am so excited about today's interview. We kind of go on a rant and it's a whole lot of fun. So let me tell you about our guest real quick and then we'll jump right in. Janet Dalgleish helps people from all walks of life to figure out who they came here to be and how to live that life from a place of joy. Based in Southeast Australia, Janet uses her unique blend of astrology and life coaching to support her international clientele of poets, physicians, rebels, politicians, creatives, and entrepreneurs. I feel like this is way too short of a bio because she is one radically amazing woman, but she's going to tell you her story anyway. So buckle up. Here we go. What is up, ambitious women? I am so excited for today. Uh, How are you doing, Janet?
1: I am so good. I'm so good. (laughs) Yes.
0: I'm excited too. This is going to be such a fun conversation, (laughs) y'all. We're going to go down some rabbit holes. (laughs) Oh, for sure. It might get a little ranty. Um, It's going to be very passionate. And uh, you better do this, going to be good. Janet, have you always been an ambitious woman? (laughs)
1: You know what this is such a funny question because I know you ask this of every every guest you have on the podcast and I was like well yes and no like when I look at my astrological chart I was born to be ambitious and then I spent probably from about three days old onwards learning a bunch of stuff so that by the time I don't know if you know this about me but when I was 15 I contemplated suicide because I was so distressed by the fact that I had no idea what I wanted to do and yeah. I had to make decisions about my academic stream and I remember sitting in the window of my boarding a school dormitory wondering if the drop was high enough to kill me and realizing it wasn't and it was probably going to injure me and really hurt so I didn't but yeah oh man that was the first time I really toyed with the idea of I I don't know who I am and what I'm here to do so the answer to the question is, I mean, when people ask me, what did you want to do when you grew up? I, my usual answer is I wanted to be a horse. <laughs> I couldn't think of anything that humans did that was like interesting enough to make me go, oh, I want to do that. That didn't also come along with, oh, I could never do that.
0: Yeah. So have- the only thing I could think of was horse. I love that um, for you. Yes. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs> And also, yeah, I, I think that like, we put so much pressure on children. I mean, like, even when like, I see people doing this to like four or five-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is like, so insane. Why does a a child, even at 15, why do you have to know definitively what you're going to do until you're approximately 85 years old? You know, it's our life range. (laughs) Like, and why do we have to have this assumption that you should only be one thing in life?
1: Well, do you know, it's interesting. My dad was a GP, a doctor, family physician, and he knew that he wanted to be a doctor from the time he was a little boy. And I didn't know when I was little that that wasn't normal, that yeah. that's a really rare thing for someone to know what they want to do, go and do it. He did that right through until he retired at, you know, in his seventies and he loved it. Every day that he went to work, he loved it. I mean, there were days that got a bit boring when it was everyone had a cold and nothing else, but he was really good at it. And so I had that in front of me and I yeah. couldn't there's no way I could measure up. And I think you're absolutely right. That's the reason whenever I see that question on Facebook when somebody's saying, What did you want to be when you grow up? When you grew up, I always say a horse because it's like, why, why are we even asking that of ourselves now? <laughs> what makes it okay that I didn't know what I wanted to be when I would grow up? So I'm gonna settle for horse and I'm gonna say that's I'm gonna be really proud of that.
0: <laughs> yeah, I answer that question with like. Um yeah, when I grow up, like I like I'm still not there. I still don't know what That's I want to be when I grow up.
1: <laughs> I, get there. <laughs> I know
0: I still don't feel like a grown-up. Like, ah, oh, whatever, we're good. Um yeah, but it's weird because that question is so it's got all those underlying assumptions. It's so narrow. It makes people feel like if they don't know the answer, there's something wrong with them when actually like um fewer people actually definitively know than not. And so many people have multiple interests and talents, and we live an amazing time in the in the world and the history of humans, where like you could literally yes. reinvent yourself every five minutes and and have a go at that
1: and, and be very successful. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's one of the things I talk about with my clients is that there's a distinction between the sense of life purpose: what did you come here to do? What difference did you come to make in the world? And what career did you decide to have? What career, like, did you know before you got here that you were going to be a baker or a a CEO of a a shoemaking company or a life coach? And it's less about the specifics of the career. It's more about what purpose did I come to express through the conduit of that work? Um, Yes, I I love that, that, right? Because I feel
0: like, um I've always actually very clearly known that my purpose was to help people and to like make the world a better place like I, I just always had this um very strong sense but I didn't know how I was going to express that and exactly. um you know being a trailing military spouse it forced me to um do different <laughs> yeah. things in my career than I thought I was ne- I probably was going to do but I you know because I knew that I wanted to help people I always found ways that I could help people so it was different career choices but with mm-hmm. the, with filling that need to help people to serve to to build and strengthen communities
1: absolutely and it's not and the thing is there are there are flavors of that like the the paramedic who who turns up at the scene of a horrific incident and saves lives or tries to that's a completely different form of helping people it's and it it has a completely different flavor to it that's yeah. not the sort of work that I do um, that I'm drawn to and yet I can see exactly why someone would be drawn to it yeah. that has a, a different way of expressing that
0: yeah so interesting all right I want to take a shift from like you being a little girl that wanted to be a horse like what was your journey that led you to become who you are today?
1: <laughs> How long have we got? No, it's um, the short version is I spent a few years, not knowing what I wanted to do at all. I did first year medicine. Then I did social work. Then I did uh, a, a drama for a while. Then I w- started working as a professional performer and I spent 20 years working as a puppeteer during which time I was almost always the union rep on a show. Because nobody else wanted the job. And <laughs> muggins here sort of went, Oh, well, if no one else wants to do it, I'll do it. And then I got really interested in it because I don't know what I don't know whether it was peculiar to Australia or peculiar to children's theatre, but there was this sort of dual thing of if you're working as a professional puppeteer, then you must just want to do it for the love. And we're never going to pay you unless you really insist on it. So it was a lot was-
0: like the nonprofit sector that I
1: came from. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh yeah. And that we very, in my early days, we were only just starting to be considered part of the actors union. So I was involved in some of that. Then I went on committee. Then I became a union organizer for actors and performers. And I suddenly got really interested in that. And then I had a career change, an enforced career change because of a back injury. But to be honest, I was ready for it anyway. So I moved into becoming a union organizer for academics and I worked in politics for a little while um, and had another enforced career change. There's a bit of a pattern going on here, inability to say no, happy to say that I've learned how to do that now. Um, But ultimately as in my work as a a union organizer, I was actually in a very small uh, one person office on campus of a small university. So I was doing both organising and industrial work and looking after individual people as well as doing things like organising events and so on. And I realised that the thing that really lit me up was helping one individual person stand up to their bullying boss, sometimes without letting the bullying boss know that the union was even involved, but by coaching them through, giving them resources, helping them feel strong enough to actually stand up for themselves one of the most valuable things i learned as i got a lot of training as a union organizer which was absolutely fabulous stuff but one of them i remember one of the most valuable lessons i learned was if you could get someone who was being bullied at work or who was being treated mistreated by their boss who had a lot more power if you could get them move them move them from sad to mad that was enough of a spark to get them saying and thinking, what can I do here? What am I entitled to? What are my yeah. rights? What, what, am I the, what are the protections that I could activate here that would mean I could stand up for myself and not get sacked and not end up, you know, getting demoted? Um, and that, watching people grow in that way, oh, my God, it got me so lit up. So when, I, when Yeah,
0: I so crazy. of course you naturally became a coach because that's exactly what exactly. we do. We take people from sad and
1: apathetic to angry and ready to change Absolutely. shit. Absolutely, and, and ready to change shit. And it doesn't have to mean throwing out everything in your life. It can mean keeping the externals like the job you love and just changing the relationships, getting firmer boundaries, um, finding the more rewarding way to do what you do, maybe in another department or maybe even in another university or in another career um yeah it's it it, it all has that same flavor um so it, and this kind of completes the answer to the first question you asked which is have I always been an ambitious woman I think I have it just took me a really really long time to figure out a what that ambition was and b to start implementing it yeah I don't yeah. think I'm alone in that
0: well, was it a long time to figure it out or was it that you had to go through that past path to collect all of the tools and the skills and the knowledge to like e- execute your ambition?
1: Probably a bit of both. Yeah. A bit of both. I mean, I can't think of, I have the, I have, when I'm talking to a client, I always have a really good story that illustrates whatever point I'm making because I've had such a checkered career I've done such I've done all kinds of different specific tasks in my working life that give me this incredibly broad range of um, metaphors and tools and stories and everything Um, and if you had asked me at the beginning of my work as a coach what I would need for it I would never have told you Oh, I need to tell the story about that time I was stuck on a mountainside operating a sheep's ears for the film, for the movie Babe, and like it just it just wouldn't occur to me that these stories would ever be useful for something. Right. And it, so I think the idea that's what makes me feel now like it's been a long journey, but completely worth it, and I'm really glad that I couldn't answer that question. What do you want to do when you grow up? Any earlier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think some people's ambition maybe peaks early or they, they know Mm -hmm. right away and they're able to do it. And that's the specific path they're supposed to have. But some, some of us are supposed to meander a little bit and try different things and learn skills. And, and that's the readiness that brings us to that point where like, everything clicks and it turns on. And that's when you, then when you have that impact, not that like you weren't having impact and helping be people before because you absolutely sure. were as a labor organizer, but like, yeah. um, you know, that, that big thing that like where, where it really lights up right or when it finally yes. makes sense to you i mean i think that like probably other people who've watched your entire path this entire path has made sense like them watching you it's made sense to them that this is what you do and who you are but like sometimes for us to recognize yes. our own ambition yeah. or our own purpose or our how we're going to impact the world it, it it um materializes in a very clear way later and there's nothing wrong with that that's exactly how it's supposed to happen right
1: I think, that's, I think that's the key point, isn't it? That each of us has to be a really uh, open to the possibility that what might feel like confusion is actually part of the journey mm. and not to be. It, 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 it only becomes a problem when we start judging ourselves for it and when we end up sitting on the windowsill of a boarding school dormitory thinking about jumping out yeah. because we've got all that judgment about oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. It's like, no, 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 that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, literally nothing is a problem unless you're applying judgment or criticism to a circumstance and then it's a problem, right? Yeah. Like you were literally like everything just is, and then how mm-hmm. you decide to tell the story about it or define it, then that's what makes it a problem. Yeah. And, and then we normally judge ourselves or criticize ourselves the most, you know, like when you were talking about like a uh, bullies at work Um, and how you would coach people through that. Like, I'm like, oh yeah, that's why you coach people now with the bully in their head, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like we're usually meaner to ourselves than other than other people are mean to us. Mm -hmm. And, and it really is that self-criticism, that self-judgment that it's not good enough or that you're behind or that like other people have peaked and uh, I haven't. And, and all of these other crappy stories where like, you're just on your journey.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's not to say that you get to some point and you go, oh, well, now I've figured it all out. There's nothing more to do. It's like, it, it's never quite that clean cut. Like, yeah. Maybe it is. I don't want to say, I don't want to deny anyone else that experience because it's true for them that rock on. That's awesome. But certainly, uh, I don't know that, I mean, Carl Jung said that the journey of life is the journey back towards the self. And I don't know that we ever complete it until the day we die. It's like- yeah always more growth there's always more expansion there's always more to explore yeah sounds kind of boring to go oh well I'm now I'm here I've arrived there's (laughs) There's nowhere else to go go.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, and if you look at nature, anything, you're, you're either growing or you're dying, right? So that stagnation is actually mm-hmm. like, I feel kind of like the death of self. Like I I do see people ar- around who stop growing, who stop learning, who stop pushing for potential, mm-hmm. who stop trying, who stop um, exploring all of these different things, right? And they just are like, all right, I'm here and this is as good as it gets And And that's
1: not to be confused with the the need for rest, because that's the other thing I think that's remembering that that we go in cycles. And sometimes, what feels like sometimes that process of resting and uh, being and pausing and regrouping can feel like it might go into stagnation. And I think there is something useful in that alchemical process of letting the old rot and, you know, I mean, look—a lotus blossom flowers in the mud, in the sort of stinking mud. I think that um, it's not that we're in—that we want to be doing growth twenty-four-seven, because that just sounds exhausting, frankly. Yeah, Um, it is that thing about work, rest, and play in in the right balance at that time for that person absolutely listen to you I feel like we've talked about this before I'm winking oh we totally have (laughs) yeah but like it's not woman told me all this (laughs) (laughs) but
0: it's so true right like if we if we look to nature because we are animals y'all as much as we try Mm -hmm. to deny that um nothing grows a hundred like all year long and and like you said like there's a difference between rest and stagnation and you can see it in nature. Like when I walk through the forest behind my house, I can see a plant that is stagnant and dying and decaying versus a plant that is dormant and resting before the spring, right? Like you can visually see that with your eyes. Just like, I think that if you were honest and true with yourself, you can say, Oh, this is rest. I know that I am going to get back up and keep moving versus Mm -hmm. like, people who are apathetic and had just given up and, and no, and and like are stagnating. Mm -hmm.
1: And sometimes it can feel like from within the enforced resting, especially I'm thinking back to a back injury that I had the one that ended my uh, puppetry career. I was on the floor, flat on the floor for three months. And I know that I was burned out. I know that I needed that much rest but also I literally couldn't walk. I could crawl to the bathroom and that was it. And there was a, there, and I certainly had had more than one moment where I thought, this is it. I don't know if I'm ever gonna walk again. I don't know if I'm gonna recover from this. And so in that moment it can, sometimes we can mistake rest for stagnation. And I think it's, it comes back again to that thing of it's not useful to judge. Yeah. If we're kind of turning that lens on ourselves and going, am I stagnating? Have I forgotten how to be curious? Should I be exploring more? Should I be getting off my, literally I was lying on a quilt on the floor. Yeah.
0: For three, I not- had that moment too. Like I I worked it's to the awful. point of burnout and exhaustion and had a neck yeah. injury and a lot of other stuff going on. And I literally, it took me almost a, uh, nine months uh, yeah. to, to like walk back from that and, and have some sort of like, semblance of feeling good again. And yeah. but I think that we you get to that point when there is an absence of rest. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And and absolutely. like your body's going to yeah. be like, yo, you haven't been listening. You haven't been treating me nicely and I'm done. And I think yeah. that that's probably what happened to both of us. Right. Like, so that's, that's yeah. the critical part of like, we need to rest along the way, but you know, now I'm going to get all like political and, and stuff, but like, and, and, the way that we have designed work in the last hundred or so years is counterproductive to how human bodies operate. And we're trying to treat people like fucking robots and machines and force them to work eight, 10 plus hours a day, which is like deny, like self-denying
1: all of our human needs. It's just crazy. I remember years ago, my ex-husband was a stage manager and lighting designer. And he had a gig working on a production of Othello. And I was um, helping him out by running the the lighting board. So he and the director were out in the audience calling the cues and testing them and trying them out. Somebody else was up in the lighting rig, adjusting things. And I was on the board bringing up whichever lights they wanted. And... He ended up working 35 hours straight. And unsurprisingly, he made some really major mistakes. He made some, there were, he, if he had gone home and rested, he would have completed the, you know, whatever the final 12 hours of work were. He could have done it in three. Yeah. But he was so fatigued. We know from the research that fatigue starts to look very quickly, fatigue, you know, I don't remember the exact stats, but it's a really small amount of fatigue begins to look like the sort of blood alcohol level that would prevent you from driving.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: it doesn't take much to push us beyond that. And we, and we wear it as this badge of honor mm-hmm. and we have bosses who tell us that it's a badge of honor. Yeah. They
0: treat you like you're replaceable if you don't toe that line.
1: It just. But it's- also there's a, there's an even more insidious thing, which is, Oh, so and so is the best because she does the extra. She does the extra yards. Yeah. Well, so and so doesn't ask to go home when their kids are, you know, due home from school. Why are you? Yeah. So it's, this, it's not just the direct. Um, it's not just the direct instruction that says you must stay. It's the insidious implication. Yeah. And that reminds me so much of how our own brains work. Sometimes it's really easy to spot the actual bullying. I think what's harder to spot are these insidious little messages. It's like a past form of passive aggressive. Yeah.
0: That's um, like, like a little microaggression.
1: Oh yeah. Really. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I always, I would get, well, why do you need time off? You don't have kids. <gasps> yes.
1: <laughs> okay, cool. Thanks. <laughs> Now, the favorite one was uh, I was in a day job at one stage and the culture, certainly in Australia, and I don't know what it's like in Europe and the States, but in Australia, most buildings are non-smoking. And so everybody who smokes takes a smoking break when they want a cigarette, they just pop outside for 10 minutes and then they come back inside. So they get these little 10 minute breaks all through the day because they smoke. But if somebody who doesn't smoke dares to just go and stand outside and get fresh air, like away from the smokers, obviously, um, for 10 minutes, the the pearl clutching that ensues is unbelievable. It's like, what do you mean you need to go outside? I actually have that
0: exact experience. One of, um, the first nonprofits I worked for, uh, maybe like the third one. Um, I was in a department at this point, I was doing program delivery and, um, <laughs> the manager and the three other people there, there were, there were, um, five of us total in this department, every one of them, but me smoked and our department had a lot of a high volume of calls coming in and the, there was one person who was primary on the phone and then the rest of us were secondary right but the primary mm-hmm. person and all of the rest of the people in the department would go out and smoke um almost every hour and which and wow. that meant that I was left with the phones and they were okay with that and didn't see a problem well one day I just got fed up and I started going outside with them and they're like who's covering the phones I'm like I don't know, I don't know. <laughs> And then I quit shortly after that because I was done. Right. Like that's so disrespectful (laughs) and they didn't see it as a problem. And, and uh, I did. (laughs) Exactly. But it's so true that these like, um, it is this insidious, gross, small uh, microaggressions
1: or assumptions Mm -hmm. or mistreatments that, Mm -hmm.
0: that come from others
1: and ourselves. Exactly. And we learn it from others. I mean, the expression I use is acquired brain misery. You know, we talk about acquired brain injury.
0: Uh, yeah. I,
1: the way I look at it is we all, t- we all arrive on the planet as these glorious, amazing humans with all of this potential. Uh, and then we get acquired brain misery that just accretes on our brain builds up in layer upon layer upon layer. It comes from the patriarchy. It comes from, so it comes from systems outside of us, like the patriarchy, which I, is sort of my umbrella term it's not just about sexism it's also white supremacy and ableism and you know uh, classism and all of the all of the (laughs) the isms and then we get the 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 familial oppressions the rules that 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 apply within a family which Mm -hmm. get layered on top and then we get our own life experience of all of the input from siblings and classmates and teachers and everything else so you get the the metaphor that I like to think about is Sleeping Beauty remember in the Sleeping Beauty is lying there in the castle she's cursed and she's asleep she's forgotten who she is and the castle's surrounded by thickets and the prince slashes through and the thing that always used to really piss me off about that story was the prince comes through the thickets and then he kisses her and that wakes her up that makes no sense to me no sense at all and my version of the story is you're also you're sleeping beauty but you're also the person on the horse with the armor and the sword and you're the one that hacks through all the thickets and gets rid of all of those dismantles all of those rules in your head and then you kiss yourself when you wake up yeah Uh, yeah i think that's that's, that's
0: (laughs) so good right like for so many of us who are raised on disney um we are all waiting for the prince to come and save us but um We are the prince too, or the princess oh, really? and the prince, y'all. Yeah, <laughs> it made me think of like my this. My sister bought a house. It was built in the 1930s, and mm-hmm. she just recently decided that she doesn't like that the door was painted black. And so, um, she loves work, woodworking, and, and all this. So she took the door down and has started to take off all the paint. Don't worry, she's protecting herself against lead paint. Um, but as she yeah. has been restoring this door it was black and then um a a lavendery purple and then there was a peach and then there was a green and then there was like a white and then there was the natural wood and it was just all of these layers since 1930 of paint that people just kept putting on top and top on top on top of the beautiful pristine wood like i can't remember what what kind of wood it was but it's like expensive and beautiful whatever um it's kind of like your brain right like all of this conditioning is another layer of paint and for you to like access the truth of who you are and and a clean thinking it's it's covered by all of that paint
1: yeah Absolutely, and it can be
0: removed, right? When you're like, "Oh, the purple layer is where I learned that being a woman is inferior." Oh, the peach layer is where I learned that because I was poor, I'm not as important as other people, right?
1: Like, <laughs> absolutely. And some of those layers are really stubborn, and sometimes, yeah. I mean, the the the, the I really loved that metaphor because I love this idea that we it's not that we haven't lost ourselves we haven't been lost we're still there the 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 that core radiant version of ourselves is still there it's just now hidden behind all these layers of stuff yeah um and we can we can remove the stuff or we can or we can make it so transparent that it doesn't affect us yeah and we even like aware of it this doesn't it doesn't block us
0: and even like the people who conditioned and socialized us You know, I got some crazy messages growing up as a little girl. My parents didn't necessarily know any better, right? They were within the system and they were like, oh, it would be, it's very fashionable right now to paint the door green. So let's paint the door green, right? And so they're like, this is what we do. We paint doors green because everybody's painting their doors green.
1: I mean, every human is just doing the best we can with what we have. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But it's, it's, it is that moment of waking up and saying, I just want it to be natural wood again. Yeah. I don't want yeah. all this gross paint on here and like you said like some some of the layers are harder to get off it's true she had to go back and find different like chemical solvents to, to get some yeah. of the different layers of paint off because they were um paint of a different era that, that was um you know had different chemicals in it and different sticky mm-hmm. properties and it's like it's yeah I keep using this door metaphor it's so good so good <laughs> I'm going to need to see a picture of that door when it's finished. (laughs) I know, right? I'm going to have to ask. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. A big, huge part of who you are now and Hmm. probably who you've always been, but like you're, you're very um, vocal and talk about it um, is like your anti-racist work. And, and you really like, you're just a big, like, let's dismantle all of these oppressive systems. Tell me about your journey into that.
1: I grew up in a house where I had my parents there and my grandmother. And my grandmother had was born in 1896, and had been raised upper middle class English Victorian parents, very Victorian sort of Edwardian upbringing. And when I was growing up, the the people who were that I knew who were most unlike us were Catholics. I didn't know that there were even other groups that were even less like me i had a very very (laughs) sheltered very bubble kind of childhood and then we moved to australia when i was 10 and i i remember at school i uh, some of my friends were um girls from the local aboriginal families and it never I, i it never occurred to me that we were different from each other i just didn't it sort of didn't compute and yet the second worst punishment at at my primary school, the first worst punishment was getting the cuts, which was being hit on the hand with a a wooden ruler. Um, But the second worst punishment was being made to sit next to one of the Aboriginal kids. And as a child, I had no concept. I, I knew it was wrong. I knew that it was just not right, somehow wrong. I had no language for it. I had no way to articulate why it was wrong or how it was wrong and because the teacher said so and I was a very well-behaved, obedient child, I didn't challenge it. I just sat with it and thought, there's something fundamentally wrong about this. And then fast forward some decades, I began to be aware, particularly when social media emerged and I was on Facebook and I was starting to hear other voices um, and bit by this time, I'd worked with some Aboriginal actors, I had some um, African-American friends online, uh, and I had quite a lot of Asian-Australian friends. So my world had broadened, but I suddenly became aware of my privilege mm-hmm. in a much more concrete way because of some of the African-American voices that I was starting to hear, and also some of the Indigenous activists watching things like the Campaign for Land Rights in Australia. And so my thinking shifted over the years from this very insulated little English girl who thought that Roman Catholics were scary um, through to somebody who now had a lot more different connections. But that wasn't enough, suddenly realizing that I'm, so I'm cisgender, I'm straight, I'm white. So I tick a lot of the privilege boxes. Probably the only one I don't tick is that I'm female. It's the one, you know, the sexism is about the only ism that I suffer from. And I suddenly thought, oh, my God, this is I really want to help. And so I ended up doing all the wrong things of, you know, maybe not doing all the wrong things, but I frequently put my foot in my mouth because I would go I would try to to help fix a situation instead of just shutting up and listening. (laughs) Uh, And I, I now can look back and laugh. But, oh, my gosh, there were some tears shed because I did the classic white woman, ignorant white woman thing of, first of all, trying to fix things, which is like, sorry, sweetheart, that's just not your work to do. Then I tried to do, then I tried to say things and got schooled for things that I'd said and felt all hurt. So I went through the whole white fragility thing. And then I tried to ask the African-American friends I knew particularly what I was supposed to do. So I tried to make, give them the work of yeah. fixing me instead of taking responsibility for my own journey. I did it all, all the things that you could do wrong. I did. Um,
0: but are you glad that you did though, to get to where totally, you're
1: Totally, yeah. Totally. Totally. Because now I watch other people, particularly in my, in our industry, I think, you know, um, I see so many people who go through this same journey and they may be just at the beginning of that journey and they're trying to figure it out. They're trying to figure out how do I, now that I've noticed that I have privilege, what do I do with that? Yeah. I don't feel comfortable with it. How do I sit with the discomfort of realizing I've had it all along and I never even realized it, which feels awful. Mm-hmm. But how do I do that and sit with my own discomfort and not make somebody else responsible for soothing me? It's not the work of my black friends to say, there, there, Janet, isn't it awful that you feel so terrible for having privilege? That's (laughs) completely, that's just demented. (laughs) Like, that's crazy. I'm having an emotional response about the thing that happened to you. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. You know, the closest parallel that I can think of that was really vivid for me was when I thought of it, when I realized that this parallel existed. Um, my, My dear father died about 10 years ago actually closer to 11 now. Um, and in the last weeks of his life, he knew that he was dying. He was in hospital and his friends were somewhat shocked by how quickly his, you know, his end was coming. And so they would come to the hospital and he would minister to them. He was one of those people who could just make everybody feel better. Yeah. And there was one day where he had declined quite significantly. He was not yet in a coma, but he was clearly in some pain. He was on the most morphine he could have. Um, and some people came to visit him and they were sort of emotionally demanding. Oh, isn't it yeah. terrible? Um, and he, you could see that they were genuinely grief stricken, but they were so used to him being the one that took care of people. Yeah. that They didn't know what else to do other than put that pressure on him. And I could see him really struggling with it. And I, I got so angry and I said to my mum, can we just not let anyone else except family in from now on? And she was like, yeah, let's do that. But that same thing of saying, here is somebody who's under a lot of pressure, who is going through some horrible stuff. And then I come along with my fragility and say, oh, you need to take care of me. no. No. That's not okay. So one of the things that I love doing now is being able to, when I see other white women in particular, because being one, I know what that's like. <laughs> so I can speak to that more effectively than anything, I guess. Um, but I love the when I get an opportunity to reach out and call them in, and say, "Hey, I love you," and this is happening, and this is going to be, you know, you are going to get schooled, and it's going to feel like shit. You are going to feel like you've had a brick in the face and you are going to have to cry on your own, cry into your pillow, deal with your emotional fallout, and then get your act together and find ways to use your privilege to sit down, sit your butt down, listen to what it is that people need, whether we're talking about anti-racism work or whether we're talking about the, the needs of people who are who are disabled or whether we're talking about gender inclusivity whatever field it is that you want to contribute to in some way you need to be really sensitive about sit down shut up listen
0: yeah
1: and when you need educating get people from that community to teach you and you pay them for it mm-hmm. you do not ask them to do that work for you for free
0: Yeah, because it's so much emotional labor. I actually, um, you know, before we lived in Germany, lived in Utah and I have a friend. She's one of the few black women (laughs) in Northern Utah. And she's, you know, she's very vocal about DEI stuff. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of white Um, heavily religious conservative women in Utah who are starting to open up to this idea of privilege and they actually don't agree with it. And, um, you know, like they're having that like knee jerk, like, yeah, but I'm, I'm woman and I grew up poor and, 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 and it's like the, the, the suffering um, uh, uh, Olympics and they were like, but I had pain too. And, 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 and so, so many of them are going to my black friend and saying you need to explain this to me and that's so hard. right well they don't you know they don't know any better okay fine but one yes. of them, them like well I went to her and she just got angry with me and I was like look here's what's happening you because a lot of you don't know very many black people and a lot of you are like I don't understand what's going on with race in the United States and I, and I'm kind of angry about this idea of privilege and you know I don't think I have all this privilege and Every single one of you are like, oh, I know a Black person, and you're all going to the same woman and asking her to have the same conversation over and over and over and over again, not thinking about the fact that she has five Black boys. Oh my and
1: God. Yes.
0: She keeps seeing over and over and over again in our news Black men being killed by police. Yeah. Like she's got some shit going on right now. Do you really like think that like it's her job to explain to you what privilege is? Well,
1: <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. One of the tools that I'm really appreciating the most. I, there are a couple of books that I'm that I that I really that I think really exp, um, explore the concept of privilege as a systemic thing, mm-hmm. as opposed to the personal experience, yeah. really well. Um, one of them is CAST, C A S T E. And I've gone blank on the author, but I'll send you a we'll note. Put it, we'll put
0: all these in the show notes because we'll I think, think it's
1: Yes. So, CAST is really good because what it does is explore the systemic nature of and the history of different three different systems, which are all have this same underlying construction, which is that a certain group is low, more lowly. Because they are that way, we can take advantage. We can exploit yeah. them. We can we can control them. Um, <clears throat> so she looks at the, pardon me, she looks at the caste system in India. <clears throat> she looks at Nazi Germany and she looks at African-American experience in the United States, particularly the enslavement of African people. Um, and by drawing parallels between the three, it's really clear that this is not about the individual who feels that they may or may not have had a, Tough breaks, because lots of us have had really tough breaks, and at the same time, we have the systemic advantage. When my I I don't sit down twenty four seven, and have at the back of my mind that my brothers or my nephews, if they got followed by the police for a traffic, um, for a minor traffic incident or a broken tail light, that that could be the day they die. Yeah. That just isn't in my framework all day long, yeah. in the same. Or just way because it,
0: they're wearing a hoodie and baggy pants, yes. right? Like yeah. that was another exactly. critique. I was like, well, if you don't want to get bothered by the police, then why don't you just dress right? Oh,
1: don't even go there. <laughs> just let me started, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right, right. The other book that I think is really good is um, ra- uh, the Racial Healing Handbook by Annalisa Singh. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting that is one of the models she explores is a, 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 a sort of a. a, a a look at how, and it's she's credits the, the um, people who originally created this, but there's a model of how um, black people and white people move from conforming with the system through to integrative, what, what's called integrative awareness, which is where we are aware of our, our own privilege, aware of, our, of the situation, et cetera. And the journey each group takes is radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on whether you're on the privileged side of the privileged system or on the disadvantaged side. And what I find fascinating about that is that with not much adaptation, some but, but probably not major adaptation, a very similar model applies to a lot of the other isms as well. Yeah. Where And so for me it's been really useful reading those two books and even though they both... Sp- spring out of the anti-racism movement, I think they're applicable in all other kinds of realms of inclusivity. Mm-hmm. When, we want to, when we want to be more inclusive, that's a damn fine place to start.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that this is like, whether it's anti-racist work or, or anything, right? If there's something that's not working, we all need to be a part of the solution. We need to say, what do yeah. I need to do Mm -hmm. and recognize that we all have the power to make a difference right like we all prop up systemic racism you know you maybe don't aren't a racist and you don't look at people who are different and have ill will and 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 take negative action against them but like when we exist in a system of oppression Mm
1: -hmm. and we
0: don't do anything to end a system of oppression, then we are complicit and we, we prop it up. And so it's, you know, part of it is once you have awareness, how are you going to use your knowledge, skills, and abilities in your own lane to chip away at oppression? And inequality? Absolutely. because really, ultimately this is all about someone else who has a difference in their meat suit being in a position of power over you. This is mm-hmm. anyone, I think most people who are listening um often struggle with feeling worthy and feeling good enough. And that is the effect of systems of oppression. Right. I did a whole episode about your inherent worthiness and how it's like owning be your worthiness is like the most radical thing that you can do because you're basically exercising internalized oppression. But like that's yeah. the first start. Like that's the first step, right? But like, you know, even going back to like the conversation about like workplaces not working for humans anymore. Once we know, what are we going to do with that knowledge? Are you going to sit on Absolutely. your laurels and do nothing? Or if you're a person that wants to help people, are you going to like use your voice, your skills, your knowledge, your
1: talents to like help affect change? Absolutely. And it, it what, what the other thing that I've been learning that has kept coming that sort of reinforces everything that I'd learned as a coach already. Um, And this particularly, again, with the anti-racism work, one of the, one of the nuances that I had never appreciated before is the way that when we grow up swimming in the waters of a, a, a system of privilege, we will take on board all of the opinions that that system holds. So for example, Um, one of the the, uh, facets of the racist system is that the darker the skin colour, the less valuable the human. Now, if you happen to be a human who grows up as a tiny child with very dark skin and you're hearing that message in the system all the time, you're seeing it in every movie, you're seeing it in the news, you're seeing it in conversations you're hearing it in the classroom you're hearing it in in evidence everywhere to strengthen that belief so not only are you going to have worthiness issues around the fact that you are black anyway that you then have to overcome that you then have to work against but you're also going to have these additional layers of it Mm -hmm. so any of us who grow up in any of the isms (laughs) we carry all of this we carry so much crap in our heads so yeah it's really the weight of the intersectionality right
0: because when you've got um a black woman who is um not cisgender uh (laughs) who isn't able-bodied right like that's like the intersectionality of all of those different systems of oppression telling her she's not good enough
1: Mm-hmm. And they all interact differently. Uh, and then, sexism and you, is different for a black woman as it is for an Asian woman, as it is for a white woman.
0: For sure. We, and then you as like a, a white w- woman who is like bought into this idea of rugged individualism, who's like, well, why oh. don't you just pull herself up by her bootstraps? It's like, yo, she's like being slapped around in 27 different directions by all of these systems of oppression and power that are telling her that she's not good enough, that she's not worthy, that she can't do it.
1: And also, at the same time, reinforcing the myth that black bodies are stronger, that black women are the more yeah. resilient than anyone else. And that's like, well, that, that whole myth that says black bodies don't feel pain, their skin is thicker. I mean, it's such complete bullshit. And yet there was a statistic came out the other day that something like 70-something 70, 70 percent of um, white medical students surveyed Believed at least one myth about black bodies in America that would affect how they were treated, how they would treat those patients, it, and it because I I have never been a fan of rugged individualism. I'm yeah. not like wasn't raised in America, as you can tell. So <laughs> we <What do> you <laughs> the so that we do have. I think here in Australia we do we do like the sort of anti-authoritarian stance we quite like to you know mock authority but we are also very good at um sort of taking care of the collective we like a bit of collective power we'll happily you know we'll uh, until fairly recently and politics has been a bit of a sore point here but but we had pretty early on we had um you know the one of the first actors' strikes happened in Australia when the chorus girls were, provi- having, were having to provide their own tights when they were on tour, and they weren't getting paid or for repairing them or for replacing them. Um, and so we we don't shy away from collective, from thinking about the collective good. We've, we have a, a universal medicine um, system. It's not completely non-private, but... It's not controlled by the profit, by for-profit um, companies. Um, so we we sit sort of balanced between those two things, and I th- I think that's really helpful. When we want to take a step back from that whole rugged individuals individualism, which thing which is not helpful. Yeah. If I think I have to do it all on my own, without ever asking for help, without ever asking the someone else to help share the load, then that's kind of a recipe for never feeling good enough, always feeling like an imposter. Yeah. I mean feeling really fragile. It's like if I do succeed, but I believe in rugged individualism and not asking for help, then how fragile does that success feel? I could be toppled any minute. Yeah. I could have a health issue and then I wouldn't be allowed to ask for help. That's not healthy.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And that's why we don't want to lift anybody else up because then they're going to take our piece of the pie. Right. Like I think like any, any, like me living in Europe, like it's such a, like, it makes me see how so many of these decisions are, um, arbitrary and like the underlying, like Europe is, you know, they, they do so much more to take care of their people. They have strong labor, um, policies. Everybody has like universal health care, all of these things. And the underlying premise in these countries is universal worthiness, that yes. people deserve yes. a, a basic income, um, medical care, uh, and all of these different services, right? Where in the in the U.S., we believe we pray at the altar of rugged individualism where it's your responsibility to take care of yourself because we our underlying premise is that some people are more worthy than others I'm not saying that Europe doesn't have problems with racism and other isms absolutely they do but some of the public policies better account for universal worthiness than what we do in the United States
1: it's such a great point. You know, I, this comes back to I had a client recently. Um, uh, she's in the process of developing some new things in her business and she wanted to know m- my thoughts about the pricing. And inevitably, we got very quickly to the point of, I want to charge what I'm worth. Oh, my God. And I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> going to stop you right there, sweetheart. <laughs> Humans cannot be measured by financial, by. by almost all of the isms are predicated on the idea that humans are a commodity, that the humans on the non-privileged end exist in order to be worth or valuable to the ones in power. And so we carry this idea that I'm only worth my place on the planet if I am producing, if I am decorative, if I am um, uh, entertaining if I can't do any of those things then I have no value and the the immediate question that comes to my mind is what does that mean for somebody who is not for whatever reason whether it's age disability uh cr- you know recent injury somebody who cannot c- cannot currently contribute to the collective does that mean we stop feeding them yeah. We stop looking after them. There are people who would say that's exactly what we should do.
0: Yeah. We had well, to in, be, in the U S we comment. just accept that like homelessness is a, is a, a, a normal human problem versus, you know, when I was in Los Angeles, yeah. so bad, it, you know, it was bad before, but co- then you overlay COVID. And when I was visiting my sister, it was just like appalling. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles. Like I, I remember Skid Row, but like now it's like Skid Row all over the city. Um, But I walk around major cities here in Europe and you don't see homeless people, right? Mm -mm. Like the basic assumption is like, oh, well, that's just a normal human problem. No, it's not. It's a decision that we have made as a society to say that some people are more worthy than others and some problems are um, less worthy of solving.
1: Or too hard to solve because we just basically might be bothered. Oh, we just throw up our hands in
0: the air. Like we don't know how to fix this. Actually, yeah, almost every problem that is related to human suffering we know how to solve
1: yes and, we just uh, don't want to we and don't the have reason the we don't work. is
0: because we believe some people are more worthy than others
1: exactly it's fucking and fact, <laughs> you know there's there's still a hangover from the victorian era um mm-hmm. certainly in victorian england uh the the beginning of any kind of humanitarian process of looking after people was the workhouse and the idea was that you couldn't just give people money if they were poor, you couldn't just give them money or give them somewhere decent to live. What you had to do was you could give them shelter and food and in exchange for that, they had to do busy work. So very often with the workhouses, it was not about the workhouse producing something that was then useful, like the equivalent of making license plates. It was was busy work because work itself was morally superior. That the only reason people were poor was because they were morally deficit, yep. that they were unworthy. So it's not even that poverty and homelessness are too hard to solve. Mm-mm. There's the underlying assumption that people who are poor, people who are living on the street, people who are struggling, that there's this lurking suspicion that says it's their own fault and it's because they're not, there's something morally lacking in them. Yeah. I haven't what it takes it there's a strong judgment that we make yeah well
0: and then in the u.s you overlay the fact that like wages have virtually been stagnant since the 1970s yet the mm-hmm. co- the cost of housing has like skyrocketed i like that even like what in our last place in utah like how much um my property value went up in two and a half years we sold it and i was able to pay off all of my student loan debt like Uh, people's wages aren't going up at the same rate y'all and Mm -hmm. when people are working 40 60 80 100 hours and they can't afford to pay rent in a home because of sub um substandard minimum wage right like 70 percent of uh tipped employees like servers in restaurants are women and women of color right like um and and then people want to say oh well they should you know uh, minimum wage jobs are for teenagers it, that's it's like how, how you're just gonna like first you're like well you pull yourself up by your bootstraps you should be working they are working oh well they should have a better job than that okay um like is, but, but they should so- be able to pay for their um their their um university meanwhile you know like the rate in which tuition has gone up, has also um, skyrocketed Mm -hmm. compared to wages. So, you know, oh, well, then they shouldn't take out student loans. You know, if they're in all that student loan debt, like that's their fault. It's like you're you're creating a a system where the, the entire system perpetuates this problem and keeps people without privilege, without privilege and unable like to pull themselves out of this. Or like it takes like a monumental act of God or a miracle to change their life.
1: I think I would go so far as to say that the system is based on making sure they stay. Disadvantaged. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: not about saying, well, it's not helping them. It's about saying um, that the system is designed that way. Yeah, It's designed to work that way. And yeah. the question becomes, what do we do to redesign it? Well, the first thing we have to do is get really really well educated about it yeah um and i know one of you 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 know you, you're one of you had a guest recently that talked about running for office yeah run for office if you can and if you can't support the people who are find the people whose policies are aligned yeah and run for and, and and support yeah, them
0: like campaign for people help um volunteer on a campaign mm-hmm. help out a local nonprofit that is doing work that is aligned with like what's important to you get off your ass get off of facebook like look i'm all for like screaming into facebook about like shit that pisses you off great but like what's the next step how are you going to use your privilege which is really your knowledge skills your abilities your yes. position in life to change this shit because there's more of us who are like, this isn't working. This is fucked. Yeah. But because we think that we're unworthy, we're like, well, what can I do about this? And we're all, we're stuck in our own bullshit, like in our mind, thinking that we're not good enough and focusing on the wrong problem, right? Think, oh, I'm not skinny enough, so I'm not worthy. So I need to we- lose weight to feel better. No, yeah. you know what's gonna make us all feel better is just to be like, I'm inherently worthy right now in this moment, <laughs> And then changing all of this, these bullshit systems that tell, we're not, tell us that we're not good enough.
1: Yeah, agreed. agreed.
0: I warned you guys, I was going to get ranty with Janet.
1: <laughs> yeah, so we set each other off. <laughs> like It's just as well we're on opposite sides of the planet. Otherwise we'd be doing this for four hours over several bottles of wine. <laughs> oh yeah, probably regularly. <laughs> but I like that we're on
0: opposite ends of the world like chipping away at it.
1: Yeah, agreed. Like, And that's what I think. like,
0: if you're angry, if this stuff like makes you want to rant too, you have power. You can make a difference, you know, and it's, and it's not always like going out and working on a campaign or running. Like I have a client and a friend who is starting a restaurant and is going to pay all of her employees a living wage and allow them to get tipped right? Like that is changing the system from within. I have a, another client who is like, well, there's a high failure rate in my industry and that's not okay. So she, um, started a, a firm and is upending the failure rate so that people so who want to work in that industry don't fall out. I have another client who, um, has a tax practice and is like, um, I'm going to pay my people like their annual salary in the four months in tax season um oh by the way I'm gonna mostly hire moms um and that way for the rest of the year they can be with their children but like other um tax practices are like put them on salary so they have to work the entire year even though during tax season they're working 80 to 100 hours she's like no you can just work for the four months and you can have the entire year salary
1: Like That's so good
0: that is changing shit from the inside out. That is you using your knowledge, your skills and abilities where you are to make change. Everyone can be a change maker. If you're like, I know how to do this. I can do it in from my own lane. And if we all start like saying, this isn't working and I'm going to be a part of the solution, I'm going to do things differently. That's how we topple this shit.
1: Especially, I would add to that, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of this shit. We're going to change it. And it's okay if I get the occasional brick in the face because yeah. I don't do it, quote, unquote, the right way. Yeah. Um, and I think I think there's a, a little... It, is, it can feel really scary to think I'm going to stick my head above the parapet and somebody's going to really dislike what I say. I'm going to upset my family. I'm going to upset my loved ones. I'm going to upset my boss. I'm going to upset somebody, and we have to. We have to. This is why I'm so passionate about coaching because coaching is one of those things that helps individuals to deal with that stuff rather than letting it box them in. You know, we don't want that stuff to be Sleeping Beauty's thickets. Yeah. We don't want those fears of disapproval, fears of. Um, I know you. You. You talk about the. The, the distinction between the ancient survival brain which is there all the time we need it to be there otherwise next time I drop a knife when I'm chopping veggies it's going to go through my foot yeah whereas now it's it makes me get my foot out of the way in time and it so the knife just goes into the floor we need that survival brain and that's always going to be there but there's so much else that's been built on top that we can dismantle and and that I think is so much easier when you've got support with it, whether it's a coach or whether it's you know your union organizer. Who because that's one of the things I love about the union movement.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: a really certainly in Australia, and I and I know that Australia's a union move. Un the unions in Australia are really well connected internationally. So I know that this is a global thing, but unions yeah. do an amazing job of training people on how to stand up for themselves, how to how to organize, how to make change on the inside. Because it's one thing for a CEO who owns a company to change the rules from the inside. But if you're a tax agent working for an asshole boss, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to change it from the inside? And it's through the collective approach that sits parallel. So we've got people in individual positions of power who own their own companies and are their own boss and they can do what they like. Then you've got all the other humans who are kind of in the system and want to create change. And that's where doing it collectively can be so powerful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't even get me started about how the United the United States has dismantled the labor movement since the 1950s. No, like, right? Yeah, the people in power dismantled the, the unions and have like convinced people that unions are bad for them. No, Guess no, why? Weird, unions had the like we're teaching people how to collectively dismantle the shit that wasn't working that's why you have this belief that to- that unions are bad i feel like you're not a, 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 a crazy billionaire like jeff bezos yeah. then uh you've been toxically programmed <laughs> to to not fight for yourself
1: this is the moment where i feel i ought to apologize to everyone who's listening for Ru- for rupert Murdoch. like <laughs> this one evil human on the planet <laughs>
0: Oh my God! Yeah, you these creating Fox oh, News? Oh, awful, just and, awful. It's okay. I'm so well, then, sorry. I mean, we can apologize to you for Trump and and a whole lot of yeah, other shit that we, have, <laughs> we have done in the world. So, Janet, I want to respect your time and everybody else's. I I think we could keep going for like three days, straight, except for I'd have to take some pee breaks. Um, but if people want to connect with you further, I'm sorry, we're even going to talk about like all the cool shit you're doing with strategic astrology, but Janet is so flipping rad. I, you got to go hang out with her. She uses really cool tools to help you see your unique path in the world. So tell people real quick where they can find you and, and if you have something that you want to offer, them, go for it.
1: So I, the easiest way for people to find me is strategicastrology.com. That will always be my umbrella thing. Um, and I'm putting together a thing at the moment for um, as we are recording this, I'm putting something together for the upcoming movement of Venus into Libra, because this is a really magical time where we can tap into the Venus energy, which is basically, the, the TLDR version is, most of us have been trained not to be honest with ourselves about what we really, really want. Hmm. Most of us have been told to settle for second best, that we can't have it, that you know we don't deserve it, et cetera, et cetera.
0: But you can't be so a horse that, when you grow up.
1: <laughs> that you can't be a horse when you grow up i defy that i'm determined to still be a horse somehow i will do it um so i'm putting this together and it's unapologetic desire so it's uh and i've got the and and you can find that at unapologeticdesire.com um but i'm very i'm very excited about the potential for astrology to be a very potent way to look at your own glory to look at that sleeping beauty in the castle and go, holy cow, look at that woman. She's amazing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, and sort of take up the sword of justice and the shield of truth and hack your way through the thickets and set her free.
0: I love it so much. And one other thing I know about you, and I'm going to offer this because I know you'll say yes, is that like, if you are a white person who is like wondering about your privilege and you're unsure and you're worried about what to say and worried about putting your foot in your mouth and worried mm-hmm. about getting it wrong. I have seen Janet swoop in and help um, coach with so many white women through the, the awkward, um, phase of waking up to anti-racist work anti-systemic oppression and um it do it with such grace and love and kindness and so if you have questions about that stuff i'm sure if you reach out to her she would be happy to answer those questions because she's
1: Uh, yes so so
0: tactful and graceful in how she handles that so
1: oh well thank you yeah yes of course
0: you are one of the best things that happened to me during COVID woman. We met last oh, year, like right at the right. beginning of like COVID and, and Hey, see, silver linings. <laughs> yeah, Well, right back at you, my friend. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for hanging out with us and sharing all your wisdom and your story and your truths. And thank you to all the
1: listeners who hung in there for us ranting. <laughs> right. <laughs> I warned you
0: in the beginning. All
1: no, right, friends. No.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll talk to you again real soon. Ciao, ciao. If you're ready to execute and achieve your big, bold, unapologetic goals and dreams, join us in the Ambitious Women's Collective Facebook group. It's a space for ambitious leaders, innovators, and change makers, and hey, you belong here too. Come make big things happen with us over at myyeslife.com forward slash group.